Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 58 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. In this episode, I talk with Rebecca Lee, the author of a new book, Allow Joy Into Our Hearts, Chan Practice in Uncertain Times. And it is with great joy, pun intended, that I offer this conversation to you um, between me and Rebecca. She's a delightful person, um, a, a studied uh, practitioner and teacher uh, who offers um, wonderful insights during our conversation to help us, to help steady us during uncertain times. Rebecca is a meditation and Dharma teacher in the lineage of Chan Master Shen Yen and founder and guiding teacher of Chan Dharma Community. Her book is a collection of her talks given during the early days of the pandemic uh, in 2020. Um, and it was her actual students in, inspired her and encouraged her to publish the book. The Chan Dharma community, a Chan Buddhist practice and study community made up of individuals committed to cultivating wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings. Rebecca Lee has two decades of Dharma and meditation teaching experience and has been invited to lead retreats or teach at Buddhist centers in North America, Europe, and Asia. Rebecca is one of the founding board members of the Gen X Buddhist Teachers Sangha, where she continues to serve as a board member. Rebecca has published and been featured in several Buddhist publications, including Tricycle, Lion's Roar, and Buddha Dharma. Rebecca is a sociology professor and lives with her husband in New Jersey. I will put a link to her website where you can find talks, guided meditations, and a calendar of events. Plus, I'll also put a link to how you can buy the book in the show notes on my website. Just a little more as a, as a matter of intro to our conversation you know, if you're like me, you may not respond flexibly or openly, you know, to the thought of joy coming into our hearts as we continue to navigate through the pandemic and all the related and additional traumas that 2020 and 2021 has heaped upon us. The thought of joy is uh, maybe a little too much right now, a little pie in the sky. Yes, there are glimmers of hope all around from the vaccines and, of course, from another pandemic spring. But in the back of our minds, the back of our hearts, there are a chorus of what ifs and what abouts. What about the current more infectious variants? What if the number of people who aren't vaccinated contribute to more and more variants? And what if, what if, what if? But take it on my word, this book is far from pie in the sky. Rebecca anchors her writings and teachings in this book firmly on the first of the Eightfold Path, Right Understanding or Right View. 
As she writes early in the book, quote, it is normal to feel bad. When that feeling comes up, allow yourself to feel it. This is also part of cultivating total clear awareness. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, I'm supposed to cultivate uh, gratitude and allow joy in. Focus only on the positive. But that's not total awareness. When you do that, you are blocking what I would call the not positive, the not joy things, the painful things, the sadness. You are disallowing them. And that is a form of tension in the mind, unquote. That is just a brief snippet of the wisdom and practiced understanding that Rebecca Lee offers as a teacher. And so with that promise, I hope you'll continue to the lis- listen to this conversation with, with Rebecca, which starts now. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. A pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this. So <laughs> for having me. Thank you so much. Um, first, let me say that I read your beautiful book and I've practiced with it too. It has been a help for me and an aid to my practice, especially, you know, in light of things I have personally been going through, which I did share on my last podcast episode um, in relationship to reactivated trauma I had thanks to the pandemic. Um, So you touched on some of these things and you, you reading your book, kind of me, had me find another way into looking at this. Um, so thanks for that. First of all, personally, thank you for the book because it was a help. Um, I shared your bio in the introduction to our conversation, but can you share a little more about your path to the Dharma and to Chan Buddhism in particular and why Chan? And also, if you remember this last part, how did you end up a teacher and a Dharma heir? Well, like a, well, that's a, a bit of a long story. So <laughs> I, uh, it, it sort of started uh, when I was in graduate school in California. And um, I, I was in graduate school and I was actually doing quite well. Uh, and, but there was this nagging sense that something is not quite right. And <laughs> I realized that because I was in, I, I was uh, engaging in academic pursuits, and of course I believe that these theories and these ideas is where the answer is. And I realized maybe something else. There's something else, and I didn't know what. But what I did was I made a decision to do something different. I decided to sign up for an Aikido course, something. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, and and um and I I. It was an interesting phase. It's not very long, but it opened a lot of doors to uh, body work. And uh, that was also around the time I met my husband, who's now my husband. That was I just met this guy who was another graduate. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and before I met him, I was reading Eric Fromm's book. Uh, I don't know if you ha- read this book. Uh, I'm a big. A fan of his, a fear of freedom, and uh, I read there was a phrase in it that caught my attention, and is he he was talking about something uh, that reading is an escape. Now that's 
what I was doing a lot because I was <laughs> that's what I love doing uh, because I believe in finding the answer in these books. And it was quite shocking, actually. And then are in this, like around that similar part of the book, he mentioned meditation. And I, I actually, unlike nowadays, everyone has heard about meditation. <laughs> I didn't know anything about meditation, but I made a note of it. And then when I met my 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 husband, uh, this this graduate student, he mentioned that he he does meditation. I was like, oh, okay. Could you show me how to do meditation? And uh, so he did. He spent ten minutes showing me how to do meditation. Um, so my husband actually is my first teacher, but uh, also at the same time he was he was practicing with a Chan Buddhist group. Uh, in 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 Riverside, California, and at that time, again, not like nowadays, there were very few places you could go, and uh, so he found this uh, group through taking a qigong class, and uh, so uh, and this the 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 teacher of this group um, practiced with Master Shen Yin. And um, so that's how I find uh, my way uh, to Master Shen Yin, my, my root teacher. And when I started joining this class, uh, which is a weekly group, we would meet in the living room of this teacher. Um, and I would also go to, go to this Chinese monastery in LA, in the LA area. At that time, again, you can't just buy any Dhamma books. Um, so we would, we would check out these Dhamma books from the temple library. And that's how I encountered Master Shenyan's Chinese books. I, uh, fortunately, I was able, I'm able to read Chinese. And so, um, and when I joined this uh, meditation group, the very first day um, I joined, someone in the group just returned from being in a seven-day intensive retreat from Queens, New York, and he shared his experience at the retreat. Again, I never heard of a retreat, and I just thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And <laughs> so about less than a year later, I was finally able to attend an intensive retreat with Master Shenyan in Queens, so travel from California here. It was a, because they had a very small facility, and so most people didn't get accepted. So I was so happy I got accepted to my first um, retreat as a seven-day retreat. And at the end of the retreat, I, my Mandarin was not good enough to understand Master Shenyan's lectures, in, uh, and he hadn't translated, so I had to um, I, I had to access his teaching through his English translator, who's a very good translator. And I, I did okay with my meditation. It was like um, a, a first time retreat. I'm, and at the end of the retreat, um, we all had an opportunity to share. Uh, we were invited to share our retreat experience. And um, most people there were very experienced practitioners. They went twice a year and um, they were sharing. And then uh, sort of towards the end, because I couldn't share in Mandarin. And uh, so I, 
I, I, I share my experience. I can't quite remember what, what I share, but I, after I did, um, Master Shen Yan looked, looked at me in my eyes and said to me, you're going to help a lot of people. And I, I was a little shocked and surprised because I, I didn't quite know how I could help anybody because I couldn't even understand his talk. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, but what happened was uh, uh, a few years later, I, I finished my graduate school and started a professor job in New Jersey. Uh, I wanted to be close to the to the center, and I, I took advantage of the proximity to practice uh, at the meditation center when Master Shen Yin was in New York. He, he split his time between New York and Taiwan. And uh, I, I was asked to be trained to be his translator. And so that's how I um, began to work much more closely with Master Chen Yan. So to answer your question about how I find Chow, I, I actually, I, I was one of those people I never looked around that much. It was, um, I followed the, the affinity uh, that came my way. And I found Master Chen Yan's teaching very helpful in helping me make sense of the the situation I was in, uh, very accessible, and I, I, I felt this, this affinity with him and 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 his teachings. So um, I started uh, serving as his translator, and also uh, I was asked to be in this teacher training class with him for around the same time. And so he trained us to be meditation instructors. He trained us to give Dhamma lectures and um, to make sure we have a firm foundation in uh, right view in Dhamma teachings. And also later I met his senior Dhamma heirs, the lay Dhamma, his first and second lay Dhamma heirs. And they actually um, really got me on the path of teaching retreats. And um, it's uh, Simon Chow, his second lay Dhamma heirs, who gave me the responsibility to carry on the lineage uh, when he, when he uh, gave me Dhamma transmission a number of years ago, so. Wow, that's a, it sounds like you didn't find the Dharma, you didn't find Chan, you didn't find your teacher, they all found you. <laughs> you know, sometimes that happens in Buddhism, I find, or any, I think, uh, spiritual path. I think, um, you know, sometimes when people look and look and look and look, they find nothing, right? But if it comes into your lap, uh, it just if it happens in there, I had a similar experience. I studied for years in the Tibetan lineage. Um, many, many years, 20 plus years in the Tibetan lineage. And all of a sudden, it was like I couldn't take it anymore. I, I just didn't, it was not a fit for me, even though I loved the center, I loved the people, they were like family for me. Um, but it, it was like the culture and the Vajrayana practice was just just grating on me after a while. And I, And I didn't know what I was looking for at that time. I just felt miserable <laughs> and i felt like i was a dharma failure and and i 
it was awful really. And then um, this, this, this uh, lineage, this bright dawn center of oneness Buddhism, which is a Japanese Mahayana non-sectarian lineage, but influenced uh, both by Zen and Shin Buddhism, which is not many people know about Shin Buddhism, but, um, and uh, a newsletter ended up in my mailbox and I read it and I thought, hmm, and they were starting their first teacher training course. And I thought, and I was already teaching at the Tibetan Center. Um, and I thought, hmm, I knew I didn't want to do Tibetan anymore. So I, and I actually physically quit doing it. I just said, I, I talked to the center directors and I said, I, this is not working for me anymore. And I just started with a bright dawn. And um, I have to say that at first I thought it wasn't a match because it was seemingly so simple. <laughs> and yet I was doing all this heady study in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and, and yet it was totally a match. So it found me. It's like I was saying, I did not look for at at all. It just plopped into my lap and there you go. And the history was written. So um, see, I understand that feeling. And I think uh, that's a wonderful story because it's it's the way it should be, I think, really. I mean, we, we shouldn't, I mean, it's, it's like in Buddhism, you know, looking for all the answers out there. That's never going to be where you find them. It's, 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 it's in here. So great story. Um, you know, as, as I referred to a bit ago about um, uh, my, my traumatic experience, uh, I found your book particularly helpful on a personal level as I have been dealing with this uh, reactive, reactive, of the trauma that I had years ago, but I was particularly struck by your reference to trauma on page 20. And that's, I have the Kindle version, so I don't know if they sync up to the, to the actual paperback version, but uh, to those of you who are flipping through your books right now, um, if you have it, but I wanted you to talk about this in more detail. As I feel, you know, we are facing, I would call it a, a major wave of trauma in both people who have suffered trauma previously and those that haven't prior to the pandemic. Um, and you kind of insinuated that too a bit, little bit in your book. Um, and that's just like frontline healthcare workers, but all of us, I think. Um, my therapist actually calls it species level trauma, <laughs> which I think is a pretty good, uh, since this is a global pandemic, um, there, there's not anybody who isn't touched by it in some way. And I don't think there are enough therapists, resources and helpers ready and able to support so many people who don't know what even hit them, right? So I'm starting to see it and hear it referenced more often in the last couple of months, even than earlier in the pandemic, because even earlier, I don't think people knew that it would be the kind of thing that would cause trauma because they didn't know it would go on and on and on and on and on with no end, right? Um, and even now with the emergence of vaccines, I think it's, it's still trauma is right there. So you pointed to the tra uh, to the, I did, you pointed to the Dharma as a way to practice with it and face it head on, which from my own personal experience is the only way to deal with it. So no matter how hard it is, um, so I believe more Dharma 
teachers and practitioners should be disseminating this wisdom. And I'm gonna quote from that page that I was referring to. Do you mind me quoting your book at all? Go ahead. Okay. Or I'm going to try to. Which which chapter is that from? So I can be with you. Oh, uh, it was. It would be a, a pay. It was early in the book. It's in the. Yep. Open. Oh, opening our hearts to our whole self. April third. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'll quote it. I just read an article today that said people who go through a period of quarantine often develop depression anxiety, and mental illness without being aware of it. There are healthcare workers who have committed suicide. If we are not careful, if we get too invested in trying to only feel positive, only feel joy, and don't allow other aspects of our experience to enter our awareness, we are setting ourselves up for serious problems down the line, maybe in the form of depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Research has shown how much higher the likelihood is of developing PTSD a few years later in people who have experienced quarantine. I'm not saying it will happen to all of us, and let's all remember, you wrote this book about a year ago, (laughs) um, but that it happens when we don't allow ourselves to fully experience and acknowledge everything we are experiencing. You went on to write that during, quote, during moments when you feel it so overwhelming, so painful, so sad, you need to feel it all. And maybe that means finding a place in your home where you can sit quietly and allow yourself to really feel that. Maybe your method is to journal. You write to express and acknowledge your feelings and no one is going to read it. And maybe you cry as a method of release, acknowledging, discharging, and releasing. That's different from suppressing it, engaging in denial. You know, I know that was a long quote, but can you talk more about this type of practice and how it is firmly rooted in the Dharma? I'm also thinking about the Chan practice, silent illumination that you mentioned. Can you talk about that also? Sure, yes. Um, Indeed, I was talking about in very concrete term, how to put the practice of silent illumination into our moment-to-moment experience. And at that time, I was talking about that uh, those early weeks uh, being in the pandemic, and I was referencing to uh, there were a lot of uh, lots of suggestions, advice, and how to um, make life bearable or even pleasant oh yeah yeah bake bread right <laughs> and 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 just to try to um remain remain uh, uh fo- focus on the positive and uh that's that is helpful in the very beginning to to make it through the early moments and when i was when i was giving that talk I wanted to um, warn everyone of not overdoing it. Right. And when we, uh, what I mean by overdoing it, it is to, we focus, we only allow ourselves to focus on certain parts of our experience. And 
by doing so, we are blocking out and disallowing other parts of our experience from entering our awareness. Now, that does not mean that's not there. We just, um, we're just blocking it out, um, suppressing them. And if you really think about it in sort of if you're a visual person, right? So like you, there are different part, that different aspect of your experience. They're like uh, all these different people uh, in your living room. And um, so you are only letting the person who are saying the, uh, sharing the good news, who are saying pleasant things to speak up. And then basically you are telling everyone else who have different voices, different things to share to shut up, to you're silencing them. Yeah. And in a way, um, what it is that we're doing is to silence part of ourselves. It's really some form of violence to ourselves. And um, so even though we might be thinking that I'm doing it to be helpful, if we believe that, um, oh, just to stay positive, you know, just to always feel happy and, 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 and upbeat. Um, we thought that is what's helpful when uh, inadvertently we're actually doing quite a bit of harm to ourselves by not allowing um, other parts of our experience to be felt fully, to be heard. And... Um, inadvertently we are causing harm to ourselves uh, in, a, in a deep way without recognizing it and very often they get buried they get pushed down and um, and it became it become it can become buried at some kind of unheard unacknowledged experience in us and we probably all have this kind of experience that we uh, realize uh, they have been there maybe for for years or even decades and they uh, the fact that they're not acknowledged does not mean that they are not influencing and sh and shaping the way we feel and think about ourselves and the world and so the practice of silent illumination is to cultivate this clear awareness of everything in our being. Um, it's not it's clear and total awareness, uh, quite different from how we usually function. Uh, we, we usually want to direct our, our awareness to what we find pleasant, uh, or what we believe is the right thing to focus on. Right? So again, what we just talked about will be such an ex uh, uh, example that, oh, I, I, I'm this is a very difficult situation. I'm supposed to stay positive so that we can just all live through this together, the, the should. And um, there's value in it, but by overdoing it, then we are we are not allowing ourselves to also feel the fear, the grief, the, the deep sadness, the sense of loss of not having that graduation, 
or not suddenly not being able to see your friends and all that stuff. Um, that's also very real, very much part of your experience. And when we allow all of that to be felt and heard and seen clearly, then like they allow to be moved through you. And um, so we are not engaging in this kind of subtle violence towards our being by blocking out this allowing some part of ourselves. And so we are not setting ourselves up for some kind of knot that get formed in our heart because we disallowed certain part of our experience to be recognized. So is like, you know, silent illumination, you know, there's a practice in, I don't quite remember what tradition it came from. It might've been the Advaita tradition, um, choiceless awareness. Have you heard that term choiceless awareness? Yeah. I'm not sure what tradition it comes from exactly, but um, is choiceless awareness like you do in a choiceless awareness meditation? Is that like silent illumination or is it something different? Yeah, I've heard of the term choiceless illumination. Uh, choiceless awareness, choiceless yes. Awareness. I, I, I'm not familiar with what it is, actually. Mm. So I, 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 I don't feel... Uh, so it's I an unfair make, question, yes. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I should be making a comparison. Uh, what, what I can share a little bit is uh, the practice of silent illumination. Uh, what it is is to learn to settle the mind um, so that it can be more um, stable. And then we can allow the awareness to just be here with the moment-to-moment -moment, uh, experience of what's going on. And uh, it's quite simple, but that is not how we are habituated to be. Our We are habituated to um, direct our attention to what we find uh, enjoyable or validating for our existing view of ourselves or the world. Uh, so we have become very good at blocking out everything that disagree with what we already believe about the world or the other person or ourselves. And as a result, we often uh, operate with a very distorted view of ourselves uh, in the world or the status of a, a relationship with the world or other people. And so when we can make use of this practice of being here, you might have heard of the term just sitting, right? Just sitting, uh, shikantaza in Japanese uh, is uh, the, the phrase that's often referred to as with, as with this practice of silent elimination, just refers to just here. You're not thinking, I'm sitting here so that I can be calm. I'm sitting here so that I can do something. So just here. And again, very simple, but uh, it, it, the practice itself will involve a lot of unlearning. First, First, discovering uh, and acknowledging, becoming familiar with 
many very subtle habits of our mind, so that we have an opportunity to unlearn them. All these different subtle habits of the mind. Um, or you can call them conditioning. Sort of, they were the mechanisms that 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 obstruct us. You can say or block us from just sitting, just being here. Right. Yeah. So it's a process of unlearning, unlearning, letting letting these um, these habits, habitual tendencies, to weaken, to weaken naturally. Yeah, it's like uh, the you know the the kleshas the uh, that's the it's this uh, Sanskrit word for uh, obscuration the right the 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 uh, I've often when people ask are we ridding ourselves of this I said well I always think you well you can't really rid yourself you know and you can't like Uh-oh. like a rotor rooter going in and out and you know I'm gonna just rid myself of all this stuff it's much more of an unraveling like a tangled ball of yarn it's like you pull on one thread and then you see oh that was connected to here and then you know but that takes that takes as you talk about like yeah, this in the uh, silent and illumination or choiceless awareness or shikantaza or however you want to kind of lump it in there is is that takes a, a, a unbiased view of what is coming before you. In other words, we, we and that's why the choiceless part or that's why the it was, it's, we don't we don't throw it away. We don't grab onto it. It's just, whoa, look, there it is. Right. <laughs> And there it went, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and also, actually, even when we are choosing, right? Because it's not so easy to just go right from having a lot of cho- picking and choosing to choiceless. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so the process of noticing how we how we want to choose to look at ourselves a certain way, or and then blocking others, then just that will shows will shed light on. Oh, this is what I'm blocking out. So oh, yeah, that yeah. that is not waste of time. It's like by recognizing that we have preferences or these biases or these we we are, we want to hold on to certain uh, idea about ourselves. That that what by seeing that clearly, we can see oh what I am working hard to leave out. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that's why the the scary kind of warning, I don't mean that you were giving a scary warning. I'm sorry, that was a bad choice of words. But it seems like a scary warning because it, uh, that we don't, we're unaware of how much trauma we could be stuffing down, right, during this pandemic, even if we had no trauma prior to that. I mean, because we just keep going thinking, you know, stiff upper lip resilience and all that. You know, I can't, I can't remember how many podcasts I listened to about resilience in those first few months. I even did one. And it's like, after a while, it's like resilience, smillions, you know, <laughs> how do we get through this? Um, and, and it's, it's like, it, it, it is that it's like, and it's like all the, and if you remember, um, I know you remember because you wrote this book about it is like, if, you, if you're on Facebook or Instagram or anything, all these people, you know, posting pictures of their perfectly 
risen sourdough bread, right? It's like, as if that's going to get us through the bad parts. I mean, when I look back, it's just all kind of funny. But I mean, there is some, there's some good part about it. I know cooking is like a therapy for me. I like to, uh, it's because I, my mind kind of stops and I don't worry about anything except for what I'm cooking. And um, so, and nature is a therapy, but you know, you can overdo that. And that becomes, like you say, the only thing you focus on. And, and to the point of not feeling anything else coming up as it's coming up. So it's a wonderful point you made in the book and um, reiterated here today. Yeah, and also it can, again, um, because our habit is to focus on one thing. So that talk follow the talk on allow joy into our hearts uh, because I can see how folks was like, oh, I'm just, that's just joy. <laughs> and then like, but again, you can also make the same mistakes. Like there's only trauma. There are only all, all these things. That, oh, I, like I need to focus on all these negative things that I'm blocking out. Uh, but again, uh, that would be, that would be a uh, a mistake. Um, again, is total clear awareness um, without assuming that what you might find. Then when we we may see, oh, there is this this um, deep sadness that I wasn't seeing, but there is also oh, like I re real I, I just love this person so much. That's my care so much and worry so much about them. So there's just we are able to open our awareness to the, the whole range of nuanced uh, experience right, that we are that's going on right now. And um, that's why in in Chan or Zen you often hear about it's beyond language, beyond words that often convey the impression that it's something that's very mysterious when what is conveying is that if we're full when we're fully here moment after moment everything that we're experiencing it's not quite possible for us to capture them in words because you won't you will be spending the rest of time to try to talk about everything but you're like but it's here and you know it you that's that's what it means uh, there is some sadness there's this and even just by using words to name them it will you won't be able to capture all of them but it's all here and so it uh then it will not be such a distorted view it's like yes there is you know joy there is some you know i could feel a little bit of the, my past that was painful that come up there is also that well-risen sourdough over there all that all of this is part of this emerging moment yeah i remember uh, in the first days of the pandemic it was again springtime like it is now and mm -hmm. you know spring is always i to most people i think would feel the same way i'm not going to say it's just me Spring is just so joyful. Uh, there's no way it cannot be in my mind. It's like you start hearing the birds constantly and all the green shoots and, and this. And I remember uh, sitting on my uh, sunroom in the early part of the pandemic last year. It must have been about the time you probably wrote your book, the end of March, early April. And I remember watching the birds around the feeder and 
thinking to myself, you know, there is the birds, the birds don't know COVID. And I was also getting my garden ready for vegetable planting and thinking there is no COVID in the garden. It was just that awareness of, ah, <laughs> this is just perfect, right? <laughs> That's right? And I can hold this perfect the same time as I can hold this fear and horror and sadness mm -hmm. in the other hand. It's perfectly okay to do both, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, we can so easily fall into the habit of thinking that everything is just a pandemic. And especially a year ago, you remember that's all you see in the, uh, in the news. And, uh, but there are still other things going on. And m most of the things that's going on in our life are still working quite, quite fine. We still breathing we still <laughs> right we still have you know roof over uh, our head and uh and and so this is part of cultivating this total clear awareness that's the practice of silent illumination then or in a way you can say put what's going on in perspective yes there's this very serious uh pandemic and it's very tragic how many people's lives were lost and a lot of people lost their job and all that stuff. That's very sad and very tragic. And um, we all feel, went through this collective grieving process. Um, but also there, that, that is not the only thing that's been happening. Uh, you know, I heard a, a couple of people I know, they, they, they expecting babies. And I have a student who has told me she's got, got, got engaged. There was still all these things like <laughs> going on. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's it's nice to be able to pause and and just smile about life going on and people being happy and getting married and having babies and it's it is it's a it's a wonderful thing, um, you know I I uh, you also have a a chapter titled unconditional kindness to ourselves, and in it you reassured readers that. Uh, how experiencing stress and anxiety during these times is perfectly normal. And it's funny, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems to me that Buddhists seem to have a really hard time with that, <laughs> right? Um, it's okay to be happy sometimes. It's okay to be that. Um, even though the meta prayer, uh, the, 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 the famous meta prayer, uh, of compassion begins with me, right? May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. May I have freedom. But somehow it seems, you know, I see many Buddhists feel somehow inadequate, lazy, not a good practitioner or something if they're not feeling calm. And, and sort of, you sort of talked about this a little bit here in your previous chatting here, but can you talk more about this unconditional kindness for ourselves and what thoughts are, or practices can help us when we like start, start beating ourselves up like that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like this, what you just described, Wendy, it's a very common, uh, quote unquote problem that practitioners, uh, told me that they have 
um, I like my mind's not calm enough. What's wrong with me? Can you tell me how to make my mind more calm? Or they will tell me my meditation sessions no good because I have a lot of thoughts and um, I have very busy mind and I'm working on it. I'm trying to make it better. Uh, so they are trying to tell me like they are failing in, in, <laughs> in their practice or they will tell me, oh, I, I, I wasn't able to do sitting meditation, you know, like every day, you know. So again, it's like I'm failing. And um, so, of course, this way of understanding ourselves is conditioned by our, by our culture, by our society, uh, conditioning this kind of perfectionism in, into us. And um, the practice of silent illumination can really help. Uh, it's really about, it's very much part of this practice of unconditioned unconditional kindness to ourselves it's like this moment i'm not calm you know clearly that's that's what's happening there's like a, the mind's agitated and and when we open our clear awareness it's like yeah it's like you know it has to do with some troubling news that uh, that i just received or i'm stressed out about what might happen tomorrow but that seems pretty normal to feel, to feel, uh, uh, to feel stressed out or, or feel anxious about it. So there is nothing wrong with you, but we believe something's wrong with me that I am not calm, uh, or like in the middle of a pandemic when we're hearing uh, this staggering number of deaths. I still remember I would be still up. Uh, past midnight, I will be looking at the number of deaths that's reported by Johns Hopkins website. And it wasn't even 12.30 a.m. I would see 200 some people uh, reported that it was just really staggering. And um, of course, it's normal to feel very sad of uh, and and maybe fear about like whether someone you love may become part of the statistics. Um, they're all because what we experience every moment is the coming together of causes and conditions. And um, but we have been perhaps sort of conditioned into thinking that like we are supposed to feel a certain way, and so whatever we are experiencing that does not match the should, um, then something's wrong with me. And so the practice of silent illumination uh, get us to see that whatever is in this present moment, that's what's here. And then um, when we allow it to be here, and we are also able to see that it is not here forever though. We're able to see that it is conditioned, it is impermanent, and then we can fully be with the flow of each emerging present moment and we can be more at ease. And when we are doing that, we actually cause ourselves less problem, less suffering because we're not resisting reality. We're not resisting the present right. moment. And when we, when we recreate less suffering for ourselves, well, guess what? We are an easier person to be with. And it, I think it's particularly important during the uh, 
those early days of the pandemic, I think, would continue to be relevant. Um, you've got your family members uh, uh, <laughs> spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week in, right. in days with you. Uh, and so I think uh, the primary order of business is for us to suffer less ourselves so that we that will be a, a great service for everyone else so, because we will be easier to, to live with. And then we can free up some um, perhaps uh, energy and become more available for, for others. And so by uh, if, if there's whatever that is happening, um, nowadays I hear people having um, Zoom fatigue or like, uh, I don't know if you heard like these kind of brain fog from staring at the screen so yeah. much. And uh, so it's so easy to become very harsh on ourselves. Like, what's wrong with me? Why was I more, well, why wasn't I more efficient? Why couldn't I do more work? I'm home. I don't even need to commute and all this stuff. And so when we see these habits, that's an opportunity to practice silent illumination. The, the, how you manifest is unconditional kindness oh yes mm -hmm. yes there's brain fog and i couldn't remember what i just said it's okay it's okay not a problem and as long as i can remember to see to to cultivate this awareness i i'm i'm practicing and so uh then we are actually unlearning this habit of being so harsh on ourselves yeah they learn to be more kind yeah and that, and that is so true and it, it is like i said i think it seems to be the more you become a practitioner the less kind you become to yourself it, it seems that way i i mean it's like i've 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 suffered from that before and i see it with people that i know in in practice and it, it is it is hard to you know cut yourself a break we're very we're very willing to give others a some space to have meltdowns or or be forgetful or but boy when it comes to us not so much you know i i think that's that's a very good point you make and the, you also bring up causes and conditions which i mean obviously if you're if if we're even read about buddhism for two seconds we know that causes and conditions is the the name of the game um but like i like to say it's like um the 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 wonderful thing about buddhism is impermanence even though it's considered the most awful thing the most wonderful thing about buddhism is impermanence because every crappy thing has an end right um that's what i get it doesn't mean it's going to turn into a good thing but but the way we are suffering with it now is going to end um, in some way or another. Even I see that during the this, what, 14 months of the pandemic, maybe 13 months, depending upon when it occurred to you and when you went into isolation. Um, uh, the way we, the way in which we look at it has changed. And it's changed by the, not just the causes and conditions in the in the world of the pandemic, like vaccinations or not vaccinations or um, lockdowns or not lockdowns, in the way we've accepted our experience or not accepted our experience, the, right? The way, because every little bit of that has changed us. It's like, I remember at the beginning, and I'm not the only one, I know everyone did it, doom scrolling, you even referred to it. 
watching the death numbers tally up within an hour or something. It's a, we all doom scrolled for those first months of the pandemic. I doubt if many of us do that anymore. And if, because we can't take it anymore. So just that change of causes and conditions changed the way we look at life every day, right? We just, and it's like, you don't have to even practice meditation, but that in itself is a practice to be aware of, wow, look how I see things differently than I did 12 months, 10 months, eight months ago. Yes, very much so. And I think uh, this provides a very good opportunity for us to see how we are a new person every moment. And um, it, it is a very obvious example of this like uh when as i am reading reading through my book i was like well this is exactly 12 months ago and exactly wendy like you said that we experience similar thing quite differently looking at those statistics but also when we look inward we realize how the, this last 12 months uh, change uh, us a lot like change uh, i've read many uh, articles where people talk about what they thought was important is no longer that important. They have different uh, goals in life. Uh, those are more obvious external things. But I think in the practice, we will also notice how our how what um, how we feel about ourselves, um, how we feel about the world. Um, our relationship to each other maybe may we may we may, it may seem like on the surface we still have the same family uh, same job but sort of like there's subtle some shift uh, in us and uh, so once we so it's important to continue to practice to 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 stay with what is the present moment you right and um, uh, rather than functioning, uh, operating off of the, the you a year ago. And uh, I think the most obvious example would be like a year ago, you go to the grocery store, you were uh, worrying about if you could get uh, uh, toilet, know, toilet paper. paper. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you, you get stuck with that, you still turn up in the grocery store and try to uh, run, run to the, the toilet paper aisle and uh, you know, pick up <laughs> extra, extra rows of them. And, uh, and, and, and many people operate like that. Right, you get stuck in in a certain a past um, version of yourself and continue to operate based on that, which is, um, I, which is not quite appropriate, right? Not quite the, the, the a good fit for the present moment, and that in itself can cause pain and unnecessary uh, suffering. Yeah, like. Uh... You know, a lot of people who have uh, grandparents or parents who lived through the depression um, and, uh, you know, God forbid they th throw out a piece of stale bread, right? That, 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 or, or anything because that's, that's still playing in their mind. Now that's causing them suffering. We certainly can understand why they feel that way, mm -hmm. but that is in fact causing them undue suffering because you know, you could go, you could go into your grandparents' house. And if there are people that do that, you could say, well, 
look at all this bread you have, you know, you don't, don't need to hang on to this last stale piece. There's no reason for it. Um, but, you know, you, you cannot change that kind of state of mind if they're, they're totally bought into it. But it's like, I think we do need to be aware of that in this situation. Um, and I think it's wonderful. It's a wonderful, you know, like they say, it's suffering is the greatest teaching opportunity. It's a great teaching opportunity to, um, to see, to use ourselves as our own sort of lab rat, you know, to see, to see how we are changing, you know, this, and it is practice to, to, to look at ourselves like that. And, and, and not just look at ourselves on, on the cushion and say, what am I feeling now? Not that moment to moment uh, meditation experience, but it's like, gee, how was I like a month ago or how was I like six months ago when it came to this subject, right? Mm -hmm. Did, did I freak out or am I better now? Or do, do you know, it's like things can change for the better and for the, for the good. And so there are so many, I've noticed so many good things about it from a teaching aspect. Although God forbid I say that too much because it's a, it sounds kind of scary, but I do think that the pandemic has been a wonderful teaching opportunity um, in that way. You too? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think, may, I think it's true for everybody. So again, it goes back to the earlier uh, question that we, we went through was that um, we, you know, we, we want to be aware of the tendency to sort of lay associate the pandemic as something bad. And then we only want to uh, focus on what is negative or undesirable uh, in, in the experience and not allowing ourselves to acknowledge what uh, perhaps something valuable that we learn and uh, or some I recently read people talking about like they really are quite, uh, quite fine find it uh, very uh, helpful to be able to spend time working from home and um, so so that's a, a, a good example of um, being willing to acknowledge that some part of the past year's experience, the changes, might actually be um, positive for, for, some, for some people. And so again, allowing ourselves to have to cultivate this total clear awareness. It's like, yes, there's a lot of losses. Yes, I miss spending time with my loved one. And yes, I also quite enjoy having all this time uh, to focus on my work in, in this extended period of time. All that is true. They don't need to be mutually exclusive. Uh, it's quite different from the way we usually think, or we usually think in this very binary way or dualistic way. It's like, it's either good or bad. No, it's, it's, a, all, it's all this that, that, that we all went through together. Yeah, both and. Mm -hmm. as is you know that's sort of the non-dual way of looking at it both and because everything is both and right so yeah you know another one of my favorite uh, chapters uh oh and now you're going to ask me oh, i know the chapter i don't know the page number uh, um is one of my favorite uh, 
chapters. And I will re remind everybody, these were from talks you gave to, to your Dharma group, but um, I call them essays, whatever. Favorite talks or essays in the book is the talk from April 17th, 2020, Practicing with the Unfolding New Normal. This is a lot, this is sort of connected to what we've been talking about. And all, and, and actually the chapters following that were all kind of, I found linked to the one thread that you introduce there. And that thread is fundamental ignorance. Um, this is my favorite thing in, in, to, to talk about in Buddhism, fundamental ignorance. Now, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous, but, um, but it's the ignorance inherent in our human condition that causes us to get stuck in habits of thought that don't allow us to see things as they are really, but instead see them as we would like them to be. And I think those things got exposed in the pandemic in a big way. Um, but can you talk more about not seeing reality clearly creates suffering and how we can use the Dharma and the practices you highlighted to help us with this fundamental ignorance. Now, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit because there's no way to cure fundamental ignorance, but there is a way to lessen it a little bit. Sure, yeah. Like uh, the, 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 um, the term that's translated as fundamental ignorance, um, the Chinese characters for that term literally means no clarity no clarity i didn't know that that's great no clarity and so um that's why in the practice of silent illumination the uh the practice is about cultivating clarity clear total awareness um, which is our natural state of being we have learned to get in the ways of ourselves through all the years of conditioning. Like, I should be this way. I should only think this. I should not let this uh, come into my mind. And we created all these um, blinders and blocks and rules uh, that make our, uh, make our, make, make our mind incredibly complicated and so that's why earlier i mentioned that the practice is really about unlearning these unhelpful mental patterns of course we still we still have concepts and knowledge and make use of them for our life um, but we uh, we, we, we make use of the practice to settle down our mind. Um, so that's why meditation, uh, whatever form you take, it may be sitting meditation, using a breath, using a mantra, using uh, the Buddha's name, um, or in silent illumination, no object of meditation. Um, his, his, to all of them share the characteristic of settling the mind and to uh, allow the mind to be more stable so that 
um, we can begin to see into what is actually happening in the mind. And so um, that's why I was saying how what you see, like for example, the, your tendency to, to prefer certain thing, the tendency to want to block out certain thing, that in itself is clarity because you didn't know that. Like we live our life with all kinds of preferences and biases and we would tell ourselves, oh, I'm like, I have no bias, you know, I, and, but it's because we don't see our biases. Uh, and, and so just being able to see our patterns of thoughts, our beliefs, uh, very subtle, deep-seated beliefs that is like your computer's operating system that's in the background. We don't know it's there, but it's just basically shapes and controls everything, being able to see all that. And then we realize, oh my goodness, you know, that's, that keeps steering myself in certain direction. And I had no idea. Now, it may not mean that that direction is wrong, right? But we don't know that. And we may realize that in some situations, steering in that direction is not helpful or maybe counterproductive. So that's why the lacking of clarity causes suffering. Um, even though we mean we have good intention, but if we do not know how we have been steering our mind, um, then we might be engaging in actions that turn out to be hurtful without realizing it for ourselves, uh, hurtful for ourselves and also uh, hurtful for others inadvertently. And that would be very tragic when we, when we were hoping to be helpful, to be bringing benefits to others. Yeah, it's it's. I love that uh, lack of clarity. What was you? What was the Chinese character? No clarity. Yeah, I love that. That's that's really good because that that it, it's sort of like um, it's the way people see everything. We all see everything that way. I think a little bit, right? If not a lot. Um, and in and 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 when 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 we're challenged particularly, I think when we're challenged by someone else seeing in another way, then our, our, like our egos rise up and, and defend uh, that belief system, even though we clearly don't know where it came from. Right? If we did, maybe we wouldn't defend it so much. I, I, I see that a lot. It's like, it's like sort of the playing out of political disagreements. And, and it's like if, if people were only willing to see how they got to that belief, how they got there, they may not be so willing to fight someone else's point of view, right? It's, I know I'm guilty of that as well. Yeah, so <laughs> seeing, um, seeing it very clearly how our uh, very subtle level of beliefs and worldview shape our opinions and actions and how in turn that causes our self-suffering and causes us to act in ways that cause harm to others. Uh, when we can see it very clearly, then we will 
be able to empathize. Oh, that's what's happening with this person too. Right, right. There. Uh, so it then 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 it becomes uh, easier for us to have compassion. We may still disagree with that person. We may still like, oh, you know, like I I I I don't I don't have I don't share the same belief or viewpoint. So it does not mean that you accept someone else's belief or viewpoint, but like the, the suffering that we have is, is sim similar in the sense that we are not seeing how we are generating suffering for ourselves and in turn without meaning to, without intending to causes harm to others. Yeah. And then, you know, tied to this is to the fundamental ignorance point of view is that next talk where you the actual next essay where you focused on quote this is a, a quote from her book practicing to suffer better um i smiled when i read this so uh how the heck do i suffer better <laughs> first by knowing that you're suffering there you go <laughs> yeah. in fact i often uh, like to say to my student that um the most famous teachings by the Buddha is the Four Noble Truth. The first one is there is suffering and people want to gloss over it. Okay, okay, what's next? Uh, tell me how to stop suffering. <laughs> yeah. And I often like to remind folks that there's a reason why the Buddha put it as the first noble truth, right? Why, why didn't he say if he's a better salesperson, he would say, well, guess what? You know, you can stop suffering so that you will pay attention to me. It's like, no, there is there's suffering. Why did he say that first? Because that is the first thing we need to do is to really pay attention by opening our awareness um, broadly, clearly every moment. Then we'll see that right now I am... I am resisting what's happening. For example, the mind is not calm. It's like, and I hate it. It's like, I'm suffering. Like my mind should, should be calm. Now it's not calm. I hate it. That's suffering, right? And, and there's, then there's, um, so when we allow ourselves to know that we are suffering, then we can also see that we are causing ourselves suffering. It's like, my mind is not calm. That's okay, actually. What's wrong with it? But I, because I hate the fact that my mind is not calm. That is what's causing the suffering. And so, well, get, you know what? I can stop hating the fact that I'm not calm. Then I can stop suffering. So when suffering better means when we know clearly that we are suffering, that there, then we will know how to stop what's causing our suffering. Yeah, that's the... The story of the second arrow, right? It's, uh, it's exactly it. The cause of the suffering is not the, the initial shot of the arrow. It's when we shoot ourselves again by asking who shot it, where did they come from, what's their name, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I was teasing you. I, I knew sort of the answer to that, but I just loved your title on that. Um, My students really like it because uh, it's not about not no suffering, but like when you suffer, you still can practice 
which is by suffering better. Better. I, I really like that because, um, like, and I love what you said. It's like, uh, uh, the, clearly the Buddha wasn't a particularly good salesperson or journalist. Like they say, he buried the lead. The lead is the fact that there is an answer to it all, but he, he buried the lead. So um, the other thing, and this is to me a biggie, and I think this was one of the big lessons of the pandemic, um, is uh, uncertainty. Uncertainty is a biggie, I believe, as you have written and others have talked about, including previous solo podcasts that I've done before and the special guest episode I had uh, with uh, Greg Creech, the leading teacher of Japanese psychology on how to deal with uncertainty. I think the pandemic was a wake-up call to understanding the Dharma in relationship to uncertainty. Most of us walked around in the near 100% belief prior to the pandemic, um, belief in the certainty of things. Even if we knew in our minds that things were, by the nature of life, uncertain, we sort of didn't believe it. And in your essay from May 1st, 2020, titled Using Chen Practice to Face Uncertainty, you wrote one of the most beautiful metaphors to reflect on from your memories of a walk with your husband, where you watched a stream in a nearby park. Again, I hope you don't mind if I read a little bit from this book because this is a beautiful metaphor. Oh, is that okay? Oh, of course. Okay. So you wrote, there is a place with a giant boulder and because of the boulder, the stream has to change directions and drop down a bit, which creates all these bubbles in the water. We spent a long time there looking at these air bubbles formed by the water's movement we noticed that there was an alcove where some of the bubbles were trapped. Right away, there was this assumption in the mind that these bubbles were going to be trapped there and stuck. But we kept watching, and what we realized was that there was something invisible going on in the water current. There was an eddy beneath the bubbles that turned them around, and then they could flow on. We watched these bubbles escape from the alcove, and downstream, there was an outlet into the next part of the stream and we thought it would just be smooth sailing from there on down. But the bubbles didn't make a straight line sailing down the stream because there was a breeze blowing and moving the bubbles off course, making a huge detour somewhere else before moving downstream. Now that again reminds me of how easy it is for us to think, and this is you speaking again, this is still from your book, there's a vaccine, we're opening, we're coming back, we just go right back to wherever it is that we hope to go, and it's just going to be a straight line, our assumption of how this is going to go. Of course, when we think that, we are all susceptible to suffering. That arises from all of the uncertainty along the way. And so it is so true, isn't it? Despite every clue in life to the contrary, we tend to hold on to what we hope is our normal our certainty, our absolute, our safety, as you refer to in a later part of the book when quoting Pema Chodron. It is that uncertainty, isn't it? That's the thing that traps most of us, I, or trap most of us, I think, in, in, in the pandemic. Do you agree? Yeah, and also I think, you know, it is interesting at this point of the pandemic, uh, it is quite relevant, right? So maybe our tendency we weren't acknowledging was that, okay, like 
that was the time when things were really uncertain because this is new. We haven't had this. This is like a new coronavirus. But then all we need to do is to stick it out. And then when we get a vaccine and well, we know we've had vaccine before. Once we get a vaccine, we know we know what to do. We will we know what will happen. And everyone is trying to predict how the economy will recover and how we all go back to life and all that stuff. And so again, um, instead of recognizing that uncertainty is like our life is uncertainty. We just do not know what is going to happen next moment. It needs true for every moment and uh, not just, you know, the last 12 months and we might notice we we was okay we have set up in our mind that okay i accept uncertainty but it's like this special case <laughs> i'll give it an expiration <laughs> by may 1st you know or july 4th uh whatever day is like that that we're done with with <laughs> this and then i will be able to go back to my old life and and, and know what is supposed to happen you know control everything and um, that recognizing that kind of um, thought pattern can uh, will, will give us clues to why we might be suffering, and so we can suffer better in those moments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 the bubbles will be untrapped, but they will meet wind downstream. <laughs> right now, right. So we're hearing about a new variants. Yeah. The vaccine may not be uh, as effective in protected us, protecting us from, and so that that's like the breeze, right? And we thought, oh, like I got like fully vaccinated, <laughs> I'm like I can go on cruise or things like that. And then now there is this new variant, and this will not be the last new variant either. And we have no idea what will show up next week, next month, and um. But but regardless of what happens, if we keep practicing this way, it's like, okay, so this is what's happening. And we are totally capable of adjusting because we have shown ourselves that we were able to do it the last 12 months. And what should keep us from continuing to be able to do that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Months and years. Um. To end this seg segment with you, this podcast episode with you, is 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 uh, the way you ended your book on living fully is to see each moment as brand new, um, and it sure so sounds good. It sounds like you know living in the now. It's something we as Buddhists give a lot of lip service to. It makes it sound so easy, right? Um, live each moment as brand new, but it sounds easy, but it isn't really. It isn't that easy. And I think a good place to finish this podcast episode with you, Rebecca, is to have you give us some tips and tricks, as I like to call them in my Buddhist, in the subtitle of this episode, of this podcast. Um, how can we do that? And how can we realize in, in, in every moment, like not on the cushion, in every moment, that everything is brand new. And I know I'm asking you the impossible. <laughs> it is not impossible. It's actually quite simple um, that it, you're saying it's, it's true. It's, it seems difficult because we're so habituated to believing that um, this is the same old thing. 
um, I already know um, and and taking the new present moment for granted. And so in, in practice, instead of trying to think our way to it, um, to practice coming back, coming back to the direct experience of this body and mind in this space. So for everyone who is listening to this podcast, you can do it right now that you can come back and relax into your body and feel the sensations of your body sitting right here, listening to the sounds and feeling the air in the room, the light, and noticing the thoughts coming through your mind, maybe thoughts, memories, image, um, feelings, all that. And then you will notice moment after moment is brand new, emerging present moments. And you're right here to experience it fully. And when we live this way, we are, we are living our life to the fullest. That's excellent. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca. Is there anything else that I should have asked you that we didn't talk about that you'd like to bring up? I, I, I think you like, you know, I really appreciate your uh, uh, talking about the book. I, 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 so thank you to hear that you find the book useful and uh, that you. I, I, oh, yeah. If, if, I, I wish I had enough money to give it to all my friends because it really helped me. It really helped me personally. So thank you so oh, much. Yeah, that's why I prize it at the. Uh, the, the, the yeah, the, it was. Yeah, I should tell people it is 99 cents on Kindle right now. I don't know how long that'll last. But. Yeah, like I, uh, you know, I, I, I did pay someone to make a beautiful cover. Um, oh, it is a beautiful cover. And um, also, I find it a useful, I, I told people jokingly, but also uh, seriously, that I, <laughs> the t- title of the book, Allow Joy Into Our Hearts. So you, you don't not, you put it on your coffee table, that's like a reminder, you can like, that, that is a reminder of uh, practice, because actually, it's silent illumination to open our heart to the emerging present moments and that's allowed the Dharma joy into, into our heart. Yeah. It, absolutely. And actually, whenever I opened my Kindle and I was reading your book, that cover came up on my front screen, you know, the lock screen. It came up because it was the one I was reading. And it, it always brought a smile to my heart because there's something about the word joy. I mean, you can't not smile, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, thank you for that. I will put a link to your book and the Chan Dharma community on the show notes. Is there anything else that you would like me or like us to mention right now about something coming up, a special teaching or anything, or just if I link to those things, they'll find that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for your time. Thank you for being my special, special guest. Thank you for writing the book. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you, Wendy. It's been a pleasure being with you here. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Rebecca and we'll check out her book. That's again, Rebecca Lee. The book is Allow Joy Into Our Hearts, Chen Practice in Uncertain Times. And also don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported everyday sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week. 
but now at a new time, Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, an education series or two, and a private Facebook group, and hopefully so much more to come. Until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.